welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Joe and Alex, for being on the podcast again. And um, today we're going to be talking about just scripture, Christian scripture, and how to take it, um, whereas to take it more in a, a literal way or a less literal way, uh, kind of probably focusing mainly on Genesis chapter 1, and but we might um, go out from that to some other text as well. But just as an introduction, Alex Ditto, um, you have a background in philosophy and theology, right? A master's in philosophy and theology. And um, anything else you'd like to say about yourself? Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. If you've uh, heard me a couple times on the podcast, I feel like I'm I'm hitting like the three timers club of the of the podcast, which is cool. I feel like with SNL, where it's a five timers club, they get a special jacket. I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to see if we can get there or something. Um, yeah. So I've uh, uh, if you've seen the other podcasts, um, then there's probably been some kind of correlate. Uh, you might have come across my other stories. Uh, grew up in St. Louis. Went through Bible college, got my um, master's degree in uh, Kentucky at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, very um, conservative uh, seminary. Uh, got an advanced master's of divinity there, uh, and then <clears throat> that was uh, I wasn't able to make any money off of an MDiv. So then I decided uh, the real money is in a degree in philosophy. Um, so I got another master's degree in philosophy to ensure that I would be poor forever. Um, since then, I've actually changed uh, kind of career paths. I'm a software developer now, um, but a lot of my focus has been in the world of theology and philosophy. Been on things like um, culpability, um, epistemology, uh, especially like virtue ethics and things like that. So um, that's kind of my my academic background on something like this. Cool. All right, my other guest is Dr. Joel Brown, and your background is in biology. You have a PhD in as biology in biology, and you teach um, in an outdoor setting in the St. Louis Public School District, right? Yeah, that's right. So, I uh, I grew up in in a pastor's home, and uh, so grew up with a love for God's word. It was it was a good experience, unlike some that you hear where it turns people off growing up that close. Um, grew up with a love for God's word, but also this uh, love for nature and science. So that's what drove me towards biology. I ended up doing a master's degree in biology, um, followed by a PhD in molecular biology and genetics, which ironically, I don't really use that molecular biology side much anymore because after completing that and doing some a little bit of postdoctoral research, I went into education. And uh, I expected I would end up in college education, but I found a very unique high school position in the St. Louis area, in the public schools, in the Ferguson Florissant School District, where I teach and man- I manage a hundred acre forest. Uh, that's right in the middle of the city. So, and then I teach the high school students that come there. So I've got about 85 high school students, which can be a handful sometimes. Um, and we run around the forest. We have a little prairie there. I'm about 50% park ranger, 50% teacher. Hmm. Um, and, and that has been like one of those 
uh, it's been a very rewarding experience to kind of have that love for my childhood, love for nature, uh, be actually part of my job. Mm -hmm. It's not all every day that that happens. Yeah, it sounds really neat. So um, today, um, the question is, you know, just how to take, um, especially the first few past a few chapters of the uh, Christian scripture of you know of the Bible and um, so what I th- what I thought for I thought we'd do is like a format is to give each of you uh, just a little bit of time to um, talk about just your ap- approach how you uh, take think scripture should be handled and regarded and understood and just after that, just a little bit of a follow-up where, um, you know, I, I'm sure that would generate some other questions and we can just follow those up. And then I thought here before um, we were finished, we ought to um, maybe kind of think a little bit about what the purpose of Christian Scripture is, kind of thinking of 2 Timothy 3.16 about, you know, Scripture is useful for this, that, and so forth. And then how does this question pertain to that? Does it matter when it comes to, um, you know, in practical things and how scripture is useful and stuff like that. And then just have some closing remarks from each of you. So, Sounds um, like a good way to do it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, do either of you have a preference about who would like to begin with just some, um, a little bit of an overview? I'd be glad to jump in there. Okay. Um, okay. So, I will be supporting and, and promoting what is called a young earth creation position. Now, I don't, uh, let, me, let me tell you why I don't particularly like that title, but I will accept it. <laughs> um, the reason I don't particularly like it is because it puts the emphasis in the wrong place. Um, I do not, it, it's not about the age of the earth that concerns me. So I prefer to call myself a biblical creationist. The problem with that is it implies that others are unbiblical, and that's not, that's not the intent. But it, what I like biblical creationists because it focuses on what the, the true matter is, in my opinion. And in my opinion, the, the question is not about the age of the earth. The question is about the reliability and the truthfulness of God's word. So does the Bible mean what it says and say what it means? Um, in its given context, in its given genre, can we trust it to say what it says and mean what it says? So, with that in mind, I, I take this sola scriptura approach where it's the scripture alone, If starting with the scripture alone, how do I read not just Genesis, but all parts of the Bible? And, and I hope that you'll see a, a consistency here, which is often lacking on the other side. So we have to have the same approach that we have for Genesis that we would have for other like similar passages. So with that approach in mind, with the, the belief, the starting point that the Bible is God's word, and I'm going to take it wherever it leads me, I go to the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, and I find the very first truth claim of the Bible, which says, in the beginning, God created. And he could have left it there. That's really important. He could have said, in the beginning, God created. Now let's talk about Abraham. Let's get into this theological stuff. That's, that's really important. But he actually gave us 
uh, details about how he created. He doesn't tell us in the beginning why he created. He tells us how he created. That's, that's what that text is, is showing us. And so if you go through and start reading it, um, just face value, or if you will, because this word will come up, literal. I'll accept that, literal, just a literal reading. Um, but I like a face value reading of the scripture. If you just take a face value reading of the scripture, here's what I come away with from Genesis 1, but really the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I come away with a world that was created in six ordinary days, rest, God resting on the seventh. I come away with a world that was created um, thousands, not millions of years ago. I come away with a conclusion that there was a real place called the Garden of Eden with real people, Adam and Eve, that really sinned um, and fell as a result and brought the curse on creation. I come away with that reading. I come away that there was a real global flood which occurred about 4,500 years ago. That's what I come away with. I come away... Um, I'll stop there because those are kind of the main points. There are, of course, other things along the way. I come away with that people really used to live a really long time. And because that is the face value reading of the scripture, I accept that. Um, I submit myself to that. Now, that is not that does not mean that's the quote-unquote um, easiest defensible position. Because as we know, and as we will see today... This is completely in contrary to um, modern science about the age of the earth, about the origins of mankind. It's completely contrary to all of that, and I'm okay with that being contrary. But then it leaves me with a duty, a responsibility, especially as a scientist. So I have a scientific training. I can't just try to brush that controversy under the rug. We need to uh, explain the data, not explain it away. And what I fear is so quick, quickly, when, when people see the controversy or the conflict between modern science, the claims of a secular worldview, and the claims of a biblical worldview, we immediately knee-jerk to tweaking and changing the biblical worldview and thinking, oh man, okay, maybe it doesn't mean what it seems to say. I'm taking the opposite approach. I'm saying, okay, let's reanalyze the data that's coming from secular science. And uh, Seek a young earth, see how that fits into a young earth model. The problem is uh, young earth creationists are a drop in the bucket compared to the secular science. Uh, so, so there's a lot of work cut out for us. Um, but, hey, I accept the challenge because I believe this is the, faith, the most faithful reading of God's word. And that's the def defense that I will make today is that I'm going to believe the face value reading of scripture first, and then I'll sort out the science second. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Okay. Um, Alex? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and I think that that view is, uh, is pretty common among, uh, especially um, in my experience in, in more conservative circles, right? I'm not a conservative, but uh, definitely run and swim in a sea of conservatism, uh, which I like. I like being around uh, my conservative friends and family. Um, but a familiar position, hopefully uh, a lot of the listeners will be familiar, uh, familiar with that position. Um, so what is, it, what is my position? Well, I'm going to start at a super meta level uh, and just talk about uh, approach to scripture generally uh, and what I call like hermeneutics or 
these are these are my first principles whenever I approach uh, the text at all. Um, so what are the first principles that I approach? Um, probably one first principle that I hold on to is that a valid and sound belief is rendered false um, if it is more divisive um, than the gospel warrants. So um, essentially what I argue there is that even if you're correct on a, a particular theological position, if you elevate that to a point that it um, is unwarranted by the claims of the gospel, um, then you've made it false by its own application. So a great, applica- uh, a great example of this would be something like, I'm a teleological superlapsarian, uh, which means something to like three people. Um, but if I said, okay, I'm a teleological superlapsarian, this person here is a classic superlapsarian, they're a heretic. Um, I would have been so overblown in my claim about soteriology or about how, uh, how the mind of God was before creation. That's completely unwarranted by the gospel. Um, the gospel itself is very refined down to what I would consider to be um, trusting in Christ as an atonement for sin. Um, basically, how do we atone with God? Um, that is a very kind of core central piece of the gospel. And so um, I kind of always want to make sure that that's like the high preference uh, whenever I'm engaged in any text um, so that I can do like a proper triage so that I'm not um, elevating a particular text too high than it should or um, ignoring important aspects of a text. Um, So even in this section, I'm going to be looking to say um, what are the theological uh, implications of Genesis 1 through uh, 11? Um, How does it impact the gospel? And what's our what are the necessary beliefs for me to hold in those sections in order to understand the gospel properly as we see it in the New Testament? Um, The second uh, position that I hold is I take a biblical inerrantist view. Um, So what does that mean? Um, Inerrant means basically that the Bible doesn't have any errors in it. Um, And by errors, we're being very particular on what we mean by that. Um, The Bible does have grammatical errors, right? The Bible has... um, uh, logistic errors. There's are times that the Bible uses, um, or the, the manuscripts that we have have these like um, um, translation errors, or it's using the wrong word. Um, a great example of that is like, I think that um, uh, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's probably a mistranslation. The word for uh, camel and the word for rope or cord in Arabic are very similar. Um, It's the uh, inflection of the vowel that makes them different. So it's probably that Jesus was saying it's easier to pass a cable or a rope through the eye of a needle than it is a camel to pass through an eye of a needle. Um, So there are certain things like that that I would say there are probably these particulars, but that's that's not what inheritance is. Inerrantism is more about what are the central claims. So the, the, best, um, the best definition for inerrantism was ever that I have come across uh, was from Feinberg. Um, he defines it as um, inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the scriptures and their original autographs and properly interpreted, which are the two kind of most central aspects of that, uh, what does it mean to properly interpret the scripture? And then what does it mean um, to be working in the original manuscripts as well as you can? Um, will be shown to be wholly true in all that they affirm, uh, whether it has to do with doctrine, morality, um, or the three social, physical, or life sciences. Um, so that's the general kind of, in the back of my mind, one of the um, hermeneutic principles that I'm, I'm using to interpret the text. 
Uh, and then the final one is um, grammatical historical method of interpretation. So <clears throat> uh, grammatical historical method of interpretation essentially puts weight on two different aspects. The grammar of a text, what is the, the text literally saying, um, and the kind of the structure of the sentence itself, and then what is the historical context that it was given, um, and how would people during that time interpret it, how would people um, kind of in the life of the church interpret it. Um, so those are the three principles that I'm coming into kind of any passage of scripture with. Um, and whenever I bring those three principles to Genesis 1 um, through 11, what I see are some really distinctly different aspects of Genesis 1 through 11 that make me uh, lean toward a, uh, a mythic interpretation. Um, so what are those that I see? Um, one is the historical context. So whenever we study um, the historical context of when Moses would have likely written it, probably around, say, 1500 or so um, AD, BC, sorry, other side of that uh, divide. Um, we see that there are other creation myths that are already developed, um, are in popular um, nuance, and a lot of those um, a lot of those features seem to be responded to in the creation myth, whether it's um, uh, the flood story being a response or the creation myth itself being a response um, to the Mesopotamian. Uh, creation myths, we see a lot of those elements that I think anybody in that historical context would have understood this to be a like theological rebuttal to those creation myths. Um, one thing that we see commonly in ancient peoples is that they would usually take on the beliefs of somebody else, but do a theological reinterpretation uh, of that. So you're correct that the gods did this thing, but you're wrong about which god it was, or you're correct about um, this process that happened but you're wrong about uh, the theological importance behind that. They would kind of reinterpret one another. Um, so we see things like that. We see some issues with um, God's action in Genesis 1 through 11. It seems to be different than his action in other places of Scripture, um, especially whenever it comes to the idea that miraculous action actually tends to take on two aspects. Um, anytime we see miraculous action, we usually see it authenticating a message or a messenger. Um, in any section of scripture, barring miraculous action that we see in Revelation and Genesis 1 through 11. Um, so things like that, that seem to be like in the context, in the uh, historical context that we see it in, the ancient peoples, uh, as well as some of the grammar that we'll see um, in some of the language that's employed, makes me go um, that I don't think that I could interpret this to be a literal historical um, historical event. And then from there, if it's not a literal historical event, then what is being conveyed? And is what being conveyed still true? Um, does something require a literal, um, a literal historical correspondence to be true? Uh, and my belief on that is I don't think so. I don't think in the text it's necessary, um, which is what I will probably come back to the idea of like, definitely could, uh, the historical Adam could have existed, uh, a, a historical flood may have happened, um, but I don't think that the text requires a historical affirmation. Um, so that's my general framework and kind of edging toward my conclusions. Um, it's, a, it's a weird position. Um, it's actually pretty common among, um, among higher academia in Christian and um, Hebrew circles, um, but in kind of the popular nuance, I think the Young Earth Creation um, is a little bit more um, kind of broadly accepted among at least conservatives 
conservative churches. Um, so if uh, uh, I'm sure there's lots of questions, kind of a weird position. So um, we can definitely jump into it. Can I ask yeah. one clarifying question? Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so uh, if, if it's myth, um, where what do you believe our origin story is, hmm. the true origin story? So um, what I would start with is um, since I think that the um, the creation uh, account is majorly mythical um, and that there's no like historical necessity for a um, affirmation of like a historical atom or something like that. Um, then my next question would be like, okay, well, are there other kind of empirical um, ways that we could kind of parse out where our origin is? Um, and I think once we get into empiricism, um, natural sciences are obviously a good place to start. So I would more or less adopt the um, uh, adopt an evolutionist position, uh, which is why I lean toward theological uh, um, evolution position. Um, and yeah, see see no real conflict um, with their. Um, uh, with their findings on evolution. And then, just to mm-hmm. be sure I'm responding to the right position, um, of which there is a lot to respond to, uh, so would you say then that God started the universe uh, at, say, the Big Bang, and then hands off? Or God used evolution as his tool to create? That was his created method? Um, can you clarify that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, that's, it's one of the things that I, um, I would like vehemently disagree. The idea of like, a uh, a deism where it's God creates the, the world like a spinning top and he spins it in such a way that it just spins off into forever. Um, I think that's at fundamental, um, fundamentally at ends with what we see in the new Testament and what we see in God's sovereignty at large, uh, which is to say, um, I think that we see God intrinsically a part of creation at each moment. Um, so much so that I kind of tend toward the Thomistic belief that God is active in creation at every moment of existence and kind of upholding creation at each moment, lest if he ever failed for half of a fraction of a moment, all of creation would cease to exist. Um, but at every conscious moment, he continues to uphold existence. Um, I don't think that, uh, I don't think the position that like, oh yes, God started the the Big Bang and then just waited to see what happened it really confirms with a lot of what we see in, in Scripture, for sure. Okay. A lot to respond to there. How would you like to take this, Will? Maybe um, starting on the topic of genre. Um, so, Alex, you refer to it as myth and... Um, and you don't see it necessarily needing to be historical. Um, and then, Joel, you take it as historical. Do you also take it as myth? And can you do you see the two that could be both? Or um, just any thoughts about genre and the point of this particular type of genre that okay. Genesis 1 is in particularly? Yeah, great question. So, uh, key word here, consistency. So, if Genesis 1 is um, myth or non-literal, I'd be very curious to see what your uh, consistent rule is for determining what is mythical or non-literal in historical narrative um, throughout the Bible, and what is true. For instance, um, do you believe 
Jonah was swallowed by a large fish whale. Yes. Okay. How long was Jonah in the belly of the whale? Uh, for whatever the text says, three days. Yeah. Okay. My, Why do you believe that? Um, so I think that that follows what we see in mythic action or in um, mythic action. Sorry, um, in uh, miraculous action um, post um, post the Tower of Babel. Okay. So there we see that the the fact that he was swallowed by a fish and survived as authentication that he is a prophet of the Lord. Okay. So, but. That, that's extremely unlikely from a scientific perspective. So, so why do you believe that he uh, was in the belly of the whale for three days? What's your evidence? Um, so my evidence would be that it's a miracle. No, like I would appeal to miracleism. Yeah. That's how do you know action. this miracle happened? Well, it's a miraculous action. So yeah, yeah, but where did you learn about this miracle? Well, from the text. Yeah. Okay. And so in that text, mm-hmm. the text tells us that he was in the belly for three days. Right, and that is a historical narrative text. Yes. And I agree with your, I 100% agree with your interpretation. Yeah. So why do you then, same historical narrative, same style, which I'll demonstrate here in a moment. Okay. Um, why do you then use a different reference when God says he created the world in six days? And, and to be clear, this is what he says um, in Exodus 20:11. He's, for instance, it says, "For the Lord hath made heaven and earth, the sea, and for let me restart. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh. Yeah. So, so he says it just as plainly as he says it in Jonah about Jonah being three days in the belly of a fish, and you believe one and not the other. So explain that. So. Uh Let's change the framing a bit, because it's not that I believe one and not the other, right? Fair point. So um, I believe both. Uh, the, the system that I'm looking at is how does, uh, how does God act whenever he acts miraculously? Um, it doesn't seem like he does it very often. In fact, uh, for the whole of scripture, like, the amount of miracles that we see are actually pretty, pretty small. And the fact that we don't see miracles um, commonly, even apart from scripture, um, shows us that whenever he does act, it's it's very particular in its scope, right? He's acting for a very particular reason. And then, what are the um, what are the characteristics that we see? Um, well, in Jonah, for example, um, we see that he's authenticated either a messenger or a message. In this case, he's authenticating a messenger. Um, obviously, spending six days inside of a fish is impossible scientifically, and indeed it is. Like uh, whether it was a fish or a whale. Uh, from the Hebrew, it was definitely a fish. Um, uh, it doesn't really matter because it is going to be a miraculous action. But the miraculous action there authenticates Jonah as a disciple of God or as a prophet of the Lord. Um, and in doing so, it authenticates a message that he has for Nineveh, that Nineveh is on destruction. Um, what we see before, and really I think the Tower of Babel is a, a great instance of it, um, what we see in God's miraculous action as a depicted in Genesis kind of one through one through two, there is no authentication. There is no, uh, there's no message really being conveyed there. There is no person being authenticated as anointed, especially in the early parts of Genesis where there is no one. Um, well, and, I, I would respectfully disagree. Okay. The message being conveyed is that he is the creator. That's the message of the text itself, but it's not a, yeah, the that's pretty action. important, the text itself. Yeah, the, the miraculous action itself, though, isn't like a... Um, it, it's not like a, um, a message to someone. I get a message from it. 
Well, yeah, uh, through the kind of the interpretation of it later, right? But no. you're you're saying it's not like authentic. There's the there was no one to observe the miracle and to see it as authentication, right? But yeah. that would be he hadn't created anyone yet. So no matter how he created, that would be the case. So you're saying God cre- could not have created via miracle. Not saying that he couldn't have created via miracle. I'm saying that it would be, if he did create during, via miracle, it would be out of line with his normal uh, miraculous action. That, that is such an amazing statement because would you believe that the origin of time, space, and matter was a miracle? Um, Careful how you no. answer. You don't believe that was a miracle? No, not in the sense that we would take a miracle, right? Because again, miracles are defined by... So where did, ever, where did all the time, space, and matter come from? Um, probably through some type of like purely naturalistic cause. Um, purely naturalistic in the sense that I would affirm that God creates all naturalistic processes, but yeah. Yeah. So, so to me, this is incredible that here, the very first truth claim in the beginning God created is discounted, um, because it's viewed as, um, inconsistent with his other miracles. I mean, um, since when did we elevate ourselves to the position of judging which miracles God is uh, are, are are really His and which ones are not? So I wouldn't say that we're elevating ourselves, right? So um, you wouldn't, but okay. it looks like that. Okay, um, it may look like that, um, but what it is is looking for kind of consistent in the way that God acts in His miracles, right? So it would be not out of like a uh, I don't care about the miracles or something, or like I'm putting myself above the text but rather out of a reverence for where God acts in his miraculous action normally. That motivates me to say, like, okay, if God acts miraculously in particular ways, how does he act kind of consistently and understanding that theology? That then leans me toward, like, okay, well, then this probably isn't um, uh, conveying a particular historical action, but rather a theological expression. Okay, so just kind of an interesting thought experiment do you believe that theoretically God could have created in six days, as the text suggests, um, relatively recently? Do you think that's theoretically possible? Um, yeah, I mean, we're dealing with like uh, what we kind of in literature would call a magic system. So, yeah, like if so you have an omnipotent it, force, literally anything is possible. Right. Okay. So it's theoretically possible. Mm-hmm. Suppose God did create that way. How could he um, convey that to you in such a way that you would believe him? Um, so conveying something like that would be um, if we saw probably like more empirical evidence and things like that. So like, you would not just take his word for it? Um, so I would definitely lean toward if there's ambiguity in his word, like, there, like we see in the text, um, of not knowing particularly a way to interpret the text, then I would look to kind of what are other kind of methods that I can use to define kind See, of discern against those and that, that's funny how you, you uh, call it ambiguity and there is some I mean he doesn't ex- attempt to give us an exhaustive account of creation that's true but if I asked you um, did you go on any, on any vacations this summer? Um, yes where did you go? Uh, we went to, uh, to Louisville and then uh, Tennessee how long were you in Louisville? Uh, four or five days yeah okay so you didn't give me all the details, but it's just human decency to take your word for it, for the details that you did give me. And God gave us actually some pretty good details 
Um, he used, for instance, the morning and evening were the first day. He gives a numeric qualifier to the day. He mentions morning and evening. Morning and evening were the second day. Morning and evening were the third day. The point being, could God have create? Could could God have conveyed it any more clearly than that? If in fact that's how he created, I can't think of another way for him to convey that. If in fact that's how he had created. I mean, if. Uh the, the difficulty is the locked system of that. Like, if, if God was to do something the way that he describes it, is there a better way that, for him to describe it than the way that he did it? It's almost, like, tautological, right? Like well, it, then tell it, me it the better means. way. Um, so what I would say is, is there ambiguity in the text, right? Which we would say, on, like, a, on a plain reading, maybe we wouldn't say that there is, but if we get really plain, then there definitely is, right? Um, Genesis 1.1 essentially states that God created the heavens and earth, if we take that as um, a full and encompassing creation of it, then Genesis 1-2 is that ends with that, right? The seven-day creation method is kind of a different creation myth than what we see in Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but yet we see him recreating the earth in the seven days that are depicted afterward. Um, so there I would say there's not one creation myth, but two creation. So like, which one do we go with? Um, you point out the, you know, this is the first day, this is the second day, this is the first yom, this is the second yom. Um, the second time that we use the word yom, the Hebrew word for day, um, in scripture, it's this was the day of creation, uh, signifying that yom is a word that is kind of used both literally and metaphorically, right? That's true. It can't certainly be both seven and one day, right? So but there seems to be there three, uh, three creation myths, right? And then there's Adam and Eve being created. That's a fourth creation myth. We see a different creation myth in Job. We see a different creation myth in um, Ecclesiastes. Like, so to say, like, there's a plain reading of the text that's unambiguous isn't precisely correct because there are these ones that, if I take one to be kind of definitive and one to be um, something that is trying to convey it in a condescending way to humanity, which is what we see through all scripture, right? God is on high, he must condescend to man and our rationality to be able to come to terms with what it is that he's done or um, what is it he's conveying. Um, sometimes that condescension is going to be able to take on kind of human phraseology um, in order to help us understand it. So something like using the weak as a, um, as a model for condescension kind of makes sense. So it might lead you toward the idea of like, greatly accepting Genesis 1-1 and using Genesis 1-2 and following as a further explanation of that. Or Ecclesiastes, that God created all in one instance. Um, something that um, Augustine, that's why he led toward the idea that yeah, creation happened in, an, in a matter of a moment. Um, I think that that's something that we see, like, if you're emphasizing, emphasizing that over the creation myth, then you would lean away from a seven-day creation. So, no, I wouldn't, and here's why. Um, because I have and this is what I'm pushing you on, is a consistent um, treatment of Scripture of like passages. Uh, Job, Ecclesiastes are poetic. So, so I would treat those differently because um, the grammatical structure is such that they ought to be treated differently. Genesis 1 is not poetic. And, and here's, here, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I am a scientist. So I like to see patterns. I like, like to see kind of large-scale unbiased tests. And so in Hebrew... Um, there are finite verbs. And you probably know more about this than me. <laughs> um, there are finite verbs of several different types. And one of those verb types is preterite verbs. This shows up frequently in historical narratives. So if you look at 
historical narratives like um, the story of Joseph, which I assume you would believe is a historical account, um, story of Jonah, uh, accounts in the books of the kings, the, the amount of preterite verbs that show up, there's on average 55% of the finite verbs in those passage, passages are preterite. Um, in poetry, known passages of poetry, Psalm 119, the song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5, known agreed upon passages of poetry, the amount of preterite verbs that show up is, on average, 4%. In Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, the amount of preterite verbs that show up is 65%, right in line with other historical narrative passages. So it is therefore my duty to treat the text as I would treat it if it was in First Kings or if it was in the books of Ruth as historical narrative. And I can't find a consistent way to do otherwise. Yeah. So um, whenever it comes to the concept of what verbs are being used kind of in their, their position there, um, that's definitely true that the, the verbs that we see in uh, something like the Psalms are going to be a different tense of verbs. Um, and Hebrew poetry takes on kind of a couple different um, approaches. Um, the difficulty, though, is that we see that kind of same, now this is borrowing from the subtusion, um, the same type of um, uh, verbs that we see the subtusion use is the same type of like casing that we see in Revelation. So there's a lot of correlation in the way that Genesis is written, especially the early chapters of Genesis and the, the verbs that are used there and what we see in Revelation. Now, Revelation, we primarily, especially if you're looking at the later chapters of Revelation, the chapters of Revelation, we almost entirely take as mythic um, that we don't assume a um, historical reference to it. So you're speaking for yourself when you say we take them as mythic. I do not take them as mythic, but I do agree that they are, they are a different genre of text. They are prophecy. Um, They aren't historical narrative. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, And so the, the verb and the way that the like, um, the language is constructed is very similar to what we see there. Um, and that's another place that we see miraculous action without necessarily a message or messenger that's being kind of codified in that moment, which is another way that I would hold that my position is being consistent. Where, um, now, but that's, you're comparing Greek with Hebrew. Yeah. Um, well, I'm comparing the he- subtution. There I'm comparing Greek with Greek, yeah, with the subtution and the subtution. Correct. But in their original or, languages, um, mm-hmm. the... Uh, th- this this study, which I've just mentioned, um, is Hebrew with Hebrew in the Old Testament, Old Testament passages, um, based on other Old Testament passages and the grammatical structure, the Genesis 1 is a historical narrative. Um, the, the only reason that I'm hearing that you think it's not historical narrative and that you think it's it's myth is because you don't believe it. Okay, so terrible framing, right? Just the idea that I don't believe something because I don't believe something. So uh, we have to start there. Again, like, um, the question is, there are texts there that are conflicting, right? Such as? So Genesis 1-1 conflicts with Genesis 1-2. It does not conflict. Okay, how does it not conflict? How does it conflict? Uh, So Genesis 1-1 depicts that God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Right, so that's a a full-encompassing sentence. Um. And then Genesis 1, 2 essentially depicts a different creation of it. So I would encourage the listeners here to, um, to read that for yourself and see if you feel a glaring contradiction. 
Same thing with um, your point, Alex, about the Genesis 1 versus the Genesis 2 account. We, I take that to mean um, in Genesis 2, it's describing creation events in the Garden of Eden because that's what the text is describing. And the text talks about that. Yeah. Um, in Genesis 1-1, God is introducing the creation account, which he then elaborates in the remaining 30 verses of that chapter. Any straightforward reading does not look at that and say, wow, man, this makes no sense. I see a contradiction here. But that is something you are injecting into the text to try to muddy the waters. Nonsense. I'm not injecting into the text. It's right in the text, right? Go ahead that and explain essentially the contradiction. We see, then. Um, what we see there is that you're, you're saying that this is, happens in Genesis 1, and then Genesis 2 is giving particularities to that. Well, that is kind of two different accounts, right? You can say it's of the same event, but then Correct. we have Genesis... Um, uh, Genesis 2, where uh, the depiction of Adam and Eve is clearly a different creation event, right? Like, these are these are things that um, are usually seen and in theological, like, in the higher realms of theological education um, and study. That's usually what it's seen, is that there are some sense in which these are con- at conflict with one another. Um, that Genesis, uh, the Genesis creation account that we see in the seven days says that God made both male and female. But what we see in Genesis, um, whenever Adam makes Adam, or whenever God makes Adam and Eve, is that this must almost necessarily span more than a single day. Um, and so then what we see there is like, then God didn't make Adam and Eve on the sixth day. He made just Adam. Um, there are things like that that show kind of a, f- a fundamental idea that we need to interpret these kind of in weight with one another. Now, given its historical context, I think that we see kind of a theological progression that's happening there, um, that we see um, each is kind of a respondence to um, different theological ideas. So God as tinkerer is what we see in um, the creation myth of Adam and Eve, um, that God is taking material that's already there and kind of tinkering with it to create something new, um, which was a common view of how the gods were, that the... um, the planet or earth existed eternally and the gods kind of were made out of it um, and then tinkered with it to create what they wanted. I think there Moses is taking that um, kind of response to other creation myths during that time to say, well, this is how God creates out of things that are already there. Um, But then creating out of things that are already there are a weaker version of creating by edict, uh, which is why we see kind of Genesis uh, Genesis 1-2 and the creation by edict uh, um, um, kind of narrative uh, being presented there. Um, and then that itself is a lower version of creation than what you would see by creation ex nihilo, um, out of nothing, which is why we see Genesis 1-1. Like these are all different kind of theological rebuttals to other kind of philosophical or theological frameworks that were common during that time. Um, and so it makes sense that they are, it makes sense that they have that kind of contradiction to them or that kind of tension with one another, um, because so, they're referring to kind of external. I don't want to, um, spend the whole time on this particular topic, but I think the fundamental difference here lies in, like in your opening statement by two minutes and 52 seconds in, I was timing just out mm-hmm. of curiosity. Um, you were talking about how, how the you went to the camel eye and I'm not I'm not challenging you on that. I'm I'm merely using that as an example of how you were already talking about how the Bible's wrong in these certain areas. Um by four minutes and fifty seconds in you were talking about the ancient Near Eastern myths and how we, we should use those to interpret the Bible. And I think it's it's 
interesting from our listeners' perspective to see how quickly this um, mythic perspective starts to resort to things outside the text. Listen to everything that Alex just said, and I think you'd. It's amazing how much additional words are included in what you just said that are just beyond the text, beyond the simple reading of the text. Um, you're welcome to believe that, but I think that's an inconsistent handling of Scripture if we are um, to then apply that to the story of Abraham and the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. What's, what's the mythic meaning behind that? You would say it's historical. And I'd say... But, so why would I say it's historical? You would say because there was um, some meaning to... There was no miracle involved. No, I would but definitely say there's a miracle involved. What's a miracle? The miracle would be that uh, Abraham's hand was stayed by an angel, right? Yeah. Correct. So that would be a miraculous action. But why would I say that that is a miraculous action? Because there was a purpose in him, not... Not just purpose, but that it authenticated Abraham as an anointed by God, right? And authenticated Isaac as the um, kind of the, the lineage of Abraham. So... What you're saying, though, is that it has nothing to do with the actual text of taking the text for what it says. Yeah. Well, no, I wouldn't say that at all. So, right? Like, but, but could God do something? I mean, the, the confusing thing is here, can God say anything and just you take him, take his word for it, plus nothing? Um, of question you're gonna to have to parse out for me more yeah well because you're saying the only the only way you'll believe something is is historical is if it had some other meaning the only the only time that i'll authenticate or rather what i see as consistent in miraculous event is that god creates uh or god acts in a miraculous way whenever he's authenticating a messenger or a messenger yeah and my my view is much simpler my view goes like this if God says he did it, mm-hmm. I believe it, period. Okay. Um, if in, in that grammatical structure, in that um, form of the text. So in historical narrative, God doesn't need to prove anything to me. If he says that's how he did it, I believe it. Do you, uh, do you find God consistent in his actions? Absolutely. Okay. Um, do you think that we can, um, can observe that consistency? Sure. Okay. Um, do you think that we can make evaluations of God by his actions? Sure. Okay. So if we believe those things, then to say, like, I can see this consistent kind of a miraculous way that he acts um, as kind of consistent to this idea that at each time he's talking about um, kind of a message that he wants to authenticate or a messenger, um, which almost always leans into the larger story of scripture, which is how does man atone with God? Um, and it doesn't seem like he, in those miraculous actions, does so kind of flippantly. Um, so if you observe those natural reactions, or those, mytho- uh, those uh, um, miraculous actions, um, then we can parse out kind of consistency from that, right? And so then uh, if we have two texts, one that is clear and one that is um, ambiguous, how do we interpret those two, right? So again, you're using the word ambiguous, I'm disagreeing with just, that. It's just not at a, ambiguous. At a, at a meta You're level. making it So at a, at a meta level, right? Not talking about just stepping back from Genesis. If we have two texts, one of them is clear and one of them is ambiguous. How do we interpret the ambiguous one? I interpret it 
based on the text of the scripture. Good. Yeah. So we, we use clear text to interpret ambiguous text, right? Um, we use um, consistency kind of through scripture to interpret uh, passages that don't seem consistent. So um, is, is man saved by his works? Is a great question, right? Um, I would hold that man isn't saved by his works, that you're saved by grace through faith. Um, do you do you hold that similar? It's a kind of a reformed position. Do you hold that kind of same position just out of yes. Meta? Okay. Um, but scripture also clearly says that you're saved by your works. Um, now, I'd, I'd like what we call like a plain reading of the text. Um, we would say that that's true. But I think the larger canon of scripture... Um, more of scripture speaks to the idea that you're saved by grace through faith. So then we use that as a philosophical, theological hermeneutic that whenever we come to passages where it says like, oh no, you're saved by your acts, you know, you show me your faith, I'll show you my works. We interpret those not to be a literal, this is how you are saved, but rather kind of a um, phenomenological expression of that, which is to say like, oh yeah, you're, you're going to have those works if you are saved by faith. Um, so there are times what we would say there are texts that are, say, harder to interpret, um, that we use um, texts that are clear, or we use more of like a consistent framework from what we see in the rest of canon in order to make more sense of those earlier um, or those harder to understand sections of scripture. So it's not, um, I wouldn't argue it's inconsistent. I would argue either it's incredibly consistent because you're using the whole of the canon of scripture to try to interpret passages of scripture particularly well i'm not going to uh uh continue to push that point i think we'll leave that to the listeners um i i mainly disagree with you pulling out genesis and saying this is this is ambiguous and um those types of things let me ask you this so this goes back to the historical nature. So I mentioned one evidence. One evidence is the text of scripture itself. It's a historical narrative, just like other historical narratives. Therefore, I conclude it's meant to convey historical truth. And it's, it's meant to be historically accurate. Here's another evidence. Um, so in the New Testament, in several cases, references, of course, the, the events and actions of Genesis chapter 1 um, to mainly three uh, with the fall. And it does this not in a literary sense. Of course, one could reference it in a literary sense and say, oh, you've heard the story about Adam. He's just a literary fi- figure, and, and here's some lessons we can learn from his life. That would be appropriate, and that does happen. But in the New Testament, there are several instances where it is referenced as a historical event. So here's my question for you. Um, in the genealogy of Christ, which is Luke chapter 3, starts with... Um, Joseph, and, and it goes back, goes to David, it goes to Abraham, it goes to Adam. So at which point, then, would you draw the line where it goes from real people to mythological people? Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. The genealogies are always going to be one of the, the hardest positions. Um, in fact, I would say kind of the two areas um, that are the biggest struggle um, with the theology... Um, uh, uh, with the um, evolution position, the theological evolution position, um, is probably going to be both that and then Hebrews. Um, so in Hebrews, we see reference to um, uh, Abel. Um, that Abel is um, is a um, 
called out for his faithfulness, right? The, these are two passages that are, are, are hard to reconcile with. Um, so I'll look at genealogies generally first. Um, I think the genealogies themselves, um, I would probably say anything before, um, anything that we see in genealogies that happened before Abraham do have a different kind of feel to them. In Luke chapter 3, though, specifically. Okay. Because um, so, that's a historical narrative. So, yeah, and, but it would be, from my position, it would be referencing the mythological narrative. So even though he claims it and presents it as truth, and he likely, based on the text, believed it as true, would you think Luke believed that it was true that Adam was the ancestor of Christ? Um, I think you would believe that it's true that he is kind of of the um, of the framework of Abraham and of the framework of uh, Adam in a similar way to say, like, this is... Um, this is him as the new Adam. That sounds and, like such a philosophical answer. Well, all my all answers are going to be philosophical. I've got to. So, yeah. so, is that a yes or no? I'm not sure. Um, Did, do you think Luke believed when when he was writing that inspired text of Luke chapter three that Adam was a real person, just like Abraham was a real person? In the same way that almost all ancient people both believed and disbelieved their own creation narratives, then yes. So that's the yes and a no? Yes. A yes and no. Yeah. I would say yes <laughs> See, and no. This is why it's so such a confusing position for Christians to hold, is because now we are picking and choosing which um, texts of Scripture are, are true and which, which ones they believed were true and it was being written. And um, clearly Luke believed that Adam was a historical person. Clearly Paul believed that Adam was a historical person because um, in Romans chapter 5, which is the famous passage, and I'm not talking about every reference Paul makes. Some of them could be literary Adams. But what he says is that for as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And he talks about Jesus uh, as the the solution to Adam's fall. Um, What's the point of Jesus being a solution to a mythical character's fall? I could say, for instance, going to Lord of the Rings, um, Gandalf was a a great example of self-sacrifice. That doesn't mean I believe Gandalf was a real person. But if I say because of Gandalf's sin in the past, now I am going to die for your sins in the present. You are connecting Gandalf to a real historical being. And that's exactly what Paul does with Adam. He um, connects Adam to real historical events. And this is not my opinion. I mean, it is my opinion, but it's not just my opinion. This is nearly universally recognized even amongst higher critics that Paul is intending to refer to historical characters. So definitely, like, in the sense that, um, so uh, let's go to the Gandalf um, illustration, because I think it's good. Um, so, like, the the issue there, why you wouldn't say, like, oh, yes, because of Gandalf this, did this thing, now I must die for your sins. Um, a good analogy. I think the, the issue with it is there's no theological expression behind Gandalf, right? Um, a theological truth wasn't trying to be conveyed, and the explanation of who Gandalf was. Um, Gandalf isn't a myth about the, uh, isn't a myth about theology. Um, whereas um, Adam is kind of a um, yeah, I would say this strongly. Adam is a theological framework, um, in so much so that even if he wasn't a historical figure, he would still remain to be a uh, theological framework. And it's the fact that um, Adam or there, um, Paul is 
drawing parallelism between the the theological concept of who Adam was and the theological concept of who Jesus was. Um, in both senses, he's talking not about them as literal, right? Because we're but not. But he he is because well, Jesus literally Jesus died. Was not literally the the new father of creation, right? We're not all literally born through uh, him in the same way that we were from the uh, mythic narrative born through Adam, right? We're not all but, genetically but Jesus connected. Jesus literally died. He did literally die. And, and Paul makes this same connection in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about a literal resurrection. <laughs> um, and he, he, he draws that in, I think it's verse 21 in 1 Corinthians 15, yeah. again, connecting that to the literal Adam. Well, it's connecting it to the theological concept of Adam No, and the that's fall. not how he does it. You're calling it theological, but he calls it like this is a real event. Well, the text could get, could be interpreted either way. Um, that's like that's a pretty pretty private interpretation. Um, okay, I mean, you, let's go to the text. Sure, I think that's. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, here we're looking at um, the text could. Interpre- be interpreted as talking about the theology of Abra- uh, of Adam. But yeah, uh, obviously, let's go to the text. And, and um, yeah, go ahead and let's try to kind of wrap up this point here pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. And there's like a couple other things to, to go on and to. The, yeah, all right. Fair enough. Um, for it says, but now is Christ risen from the dead. This is 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty that I'm reading. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Talking about a literal resurrection. Agreed? Mm-hmm. Yep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. All right, so at that point, that could be theological. Like, yeah. Then he says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Yes. And so he's, he's pointing at Christ as the literal solution to a non-literal event in the past. That makes no sense. Sure it does. Um, I mean, maybe to yeah. you. <laughs> um, that he's referencing there is the theological expert, uh, explanation that we're all under Adam, that we're all of one theological kind of framework, that we're all of one kind of sin and fallen nature, or one um, uh, kind of uh, ontological failing. Um, and since we're all of that one ontological failing that is personified in the kind of the mythic that we see in, uh, in Adam, and um, the theology that we see conveyed in Adam and that kind of philosophical concept, um, it makes sense that we would all likewise uh, be made ontologically full through the action of Christ. But do you believe we will literally have a resurrection or is that just theological, like ontologically full? That's an interesting way of saying it. <laughs> so uh, those two would be coincided perfectly. Like the idea that you would be literally ontologically full and that you would have a resurrection would be... Kind of and see, I take mind. both literal. Yeah, so, so, so that's so do I. There, that your ontological full. No, and, no, you're you're yeah. not taking the literal death of Adam. Oh, that um, Adam in death would be just Adam as a theological. Yeah, so. as a uh, humanity is ontologically limited. And see, I, I think both of those only make sense if Paul's making a literal comparison. Um, but I I understand so, you don't agree with that phrase. Uh, they don't make sense, or the like. The um, you prefer the interpretation? Is it like a, like logically it doesn't make sense, or it makes sense logically, but you prefer your kind of a literal interpretation, literal for literal, not literal for mythic. Let's go back. Um, I do I do prefer it. Let's okay. put it that way. But I prefer it because that is the straightforward 
face value reading of the text. Okay. Um, okay. Well, I mean, to that point, then we should ask question is like a, is a face value reading of something going to be the most accurate reading of something? Is that really, if we're looking at the method of infallibility, um, it has to be properly interpreted, right? Um, uh, the scriptures, whenever they're considered in the original autograph. Um, so we're looking at kind of the Hebrew and the Greek, um, and whatever they're properly interpreted are to be found true in all that they affirm. Um, but just because something is a plain reading of the text doesn't mean that it's been properly interpreted, right? Uh, so I agree. We have to be humble in insisting that our um, particular interpretations are what is in the text. But then we also have to be humble in saying when the text indicates something that a face value reading, which makes sense from the f- text... We have to be humble in submitting to that and saying, okay, that must be true. And I'll end that there. Um, okay, here's just something I'd like to briefly come back to. And then I'd kind of like to get, go on to like, you know, what does, you know, why does this matter? And what, but, um, but first, uh, just in bringing up something that Alex brought up at the, his introduction about, so we believe, so everyone believes that uh, Christian scripture is both has a human element and it and it's God breathed. It's of God. It's God's message to us. But it's also like we're using languages and culture and genres, and it's got this human element too. And Alex brought up that um, uh, like Genesis one wasn't written in a vacuum, but like. Um, Israel was surrounded by creation stories and different uh, types of things, and um, and that some of the scripture um, is like um, kind of just in that same current of writing, but like making statements about who Yahweh is. So, um, what? And kind of a response. So it's um, saying, well, you know, this is what, you know, the creation myths around here are saying. And it's describing uh, things about their God. But Yahweh is like this. So they're going to, you know, take a, you know, creation story and and say, um, this is what yeah, the true God, the God of the universe truly is like. So that's like really kind of bringing in a human element um, to it. Do you have any thoughts about that, uh, Joel? I was just, um, because... Uh, maybe, yeah, and maybe to articulate sure. kind of two aspects of it um, that I think are important here. Uh, and what we see in kind of the early Genesis account. Um, early Genesis account, I think there's two elements that we see in the text, um, both condescension and phenomenological expression. So um, condescension is something we see literally in any interaction that we have with God, right? God is exalted, we're lowly, God must condescend in order to uh, engage with us. Um, so like fundamentally anything that he, uh, any kind of correlation that he has to us is going to be um, a lower version, like he's coming down to our level in order to convey um, how we atone to him, right? That's essentially the whole narrative of scripture. And then the other aspects is that we see a lot of, um, especially in the creation myth, we see a lot of expressions of phenomenological expressions of like, this is, um, 
this is how the world around you came to be. And he, uh, Moses seems to be pointing to kind of phenomenological things like um, the thing that perplexes a lot of people with light and dark being separated from each other when there is no sun, um, which to the modern concept doesn't make any sense because we know that light comes from the sun. Um, it doesn't come out of a vacuum. But to the ancient world, the sun uh, was irrelevant to light. Um, like right now, it's cloudy outside, uh, but yet it's still light. Uh, and that's because light doesn't come from a star or a sun. It, the sun is just up there to let you know what time of day it is. Rather, the sky itself produces light. It's definitely a phenomenological explanation of the world around them. So, like, the fact that it takes on that kind of grammar, um, both in condescension sense that we see, and then also kind of condescending to make it make sense to humans of that time. Um, and then we see things being spoken in phenomenologically and answering kind of those cultural narratives around them. Why do we see all of those elements if it's not conveying that, that it's not conveying kind of a condescended um, phenomenological expression of here's how you should graft your theology as opposed to other people's around you. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time here because there are some really, really important issues we still need to get to. I think we've already kind of been down this road in the sense that I think those are unnecessary appeals to appeal to that outside literature um, because the things we've already talked about um, the historical narrative form of the text and the understanding that New Testament writers who lived at a different time viewed it to be a historical account. So, so any appeal to outside text to then try to try to change what is already clear and straightforward is to me unnecessary. So not to change anything that's in the text, but do you, do you believe that the... Um do you believe that there were other kind of historical narratives of creation at the time? Absolutely. Of, of okay. Absolutely. And from uh, my perspective, the reason those exist, this is neither here nor there, so we don't need to run this rabbit trail, but the reason they exist is because they all descended from a real Adam, a real flood. So those were in the, in the uh, oral history of all cultures around the world, and that's what we see. Um. Okay, um, so uh, uh, the difficulty is, and this this is the hard part, I assume that you would disbelieve a lot of this just because it would date back before, um, you said about 4,500 years ago, so that would have been, is that 4,500 BC or? Uh, 4,500 from now. From now, so that would have been like um, 2,500 BC, right? Uh, that the flood happened? Rough estimates. I'm yeah, not going to yeah. hold you to a particular date. So the, the difficulty there, and I imagine you would disbelieve this um, just off of the anthropology, but we have anthropological accounts of the Babylonian um, calendar, the seven-day week, um, being developed around like 5,800 years ago, or 5,800 uh, 5, BC. Um, so like just the fact that we see the creation myth being framed in a seven-day model, um, we see an ancient people having already developed a week as a seven-day model. Um, but I imagine you would just say that that's not... Um, w would you just discount that anthropological evidence? So, uh, not, I wouldn't discount it. Um, I think about it the opposite. So, the fact that these things are showing up in cultures, like a seven-day week in the Babylonian culture, yeah. where did they get that from? And I would answer, 
Well, they got that from the real account of creation that would have existed in oral tradition um, before it was penned by Moses in Exodus. So no issue there. I mean, obviously we would, I would have kind of qualms with like the dates and such, but, but that's neither here nor there. Okay. Um, so one thing, I know you got some things, it seems like kind of pressing. I want to give you a chance to, to br- bring that up, but I also, before we wrap up, I think it, what I'm really interested in is, um, what are the main things like Alex that you get from Genesis one? If we just focus on there, when you're taking it from a mythical thing, like, like what, how does that, what does that tell to tell you spiritually? How does it strengthen you spiritually? How does God speak? What does it say about God? Stuff like that. And then more taking it for more of like a, a little historical aspect, you know, what is that telling you? Um, Joel, but um, I think that'd be kind of. Inter- I'm curious about that. Like, but um, first, is there like uh, just something that you want to bring up? Like you you were referring to like just something important. That- so, uh, you want to do that before we kind of talk the the meaning of it to us? I'll, I'll jump in now. Then okay, okay, because this is ties in a little bit with where we're heading i think sure okay so um i'm really curious to to hear this response um so you would believe then and jump in at any time to correct me if my beliefs are wrong that uh prior to adam and eve or or let's they may not even exist in your your, so the yeah whether or not they have a homo sapiens group which eventually descended into us today um was developed uh, they they not by the creation of God, but through a chance mutations. Not by the direct creation the direct of creation. God. Yes, fair enough. Not by a miraculous creation of God, but rather by the sovereign overhanging. Yeah, of um, like chance random mutations over time, um, going through an evolutionary process of millions of millions of years back. Say the origin of life is about three billion years ago on this planet. Okay, so my question for you is, um, according to the evolutionary worldview. The development of higher life forms, the tools that are used to do that, are disease, suffering, death. These are all abundantly evident in the fossil record. So why in the world did God use so much death to create life? Because um, he wanted to, would be my response. Because uh, it... Um yeah, I don't. I don't see any problem with that. So it's uh, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, I think I Is think it, it's it, insulting. It appears that he wanted to. That's what I would probably pull back to say. I think it's insulting to um, put that on God when he did not. When he said the exact opposite of that. That man brought death into the world. What you're saying is death brought man into the world? Well, whenever it's talking about death, it's talking about a very particular death, isn't it? It's not talking about death in general. It's talking about the death of the human and the what I would preference more to say the human conscious experience. Because we see death, even in the Genesis account, I would argue, historically, at least it's never been, or it's a fairly recent position of creationists to hold that there was no death whatsoever. In the so let's just talk human death. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just just to set aside that yeah. um, controversy, but but your my point is um, Peter Singer, and I wish I I wish I had his quote, 
I'll, I'll see if I can, can pull it up. Um, Peter Singer, among others, points to the immensity of suffering in the fossil record of sentient beings and says that is the main reason he doesn't believe in God. And you're saying that that is not just there, but that is the, the tool of choice, death, suffering, competition, exploitation of the strong over the weak. That is the tool that God used to create when he says the exact opposite. So what he says is that death entered, uh, and I think the death that's being particular there would be the death of kind of human conscious beings, right? Um, and you would agree with this too, I imagine, that you probably don't hold that there was no death in your view of creation, right? In the seven days. So, Or do you, let me ask you that. Me Let's personally? Yeah. Do you believe that there I'm, was any form of death during that time? Absolutely plant death. Okay. Probably, and this is controversial, even yeah. among young earth creationists, I believe there was probably natural animal death. Okay. Natural land. So, so, but you can see from yeah. the text that there wasn't uh, carnivory. There wasn't malicious animal death. Um, do we see that from the text? That there was no car carnivory? That is the clear implication of the text. So, um, interesting position because that's definitely not historically what Christians have believed. Um, it's a really recent concept. Um, that's that's not, not a true statement, but carry on. Uh, that historically Christians have believed that animals No, that it's a pervaded. recent concept. This is not a recent concept. Okay. Um, it's recently popularized. Um, that might be true. Um, I think historically Christians have believed that animals uh, of pervasion have always been pervasion, even in the um, seven-day creation account. Um, certainly that's true of uh, Aquinas. That's certainly true of Augustine. Um, certainly true of other kind of as close as we can get to biblical correspondence origin, I believe, believe the same. Um, so, uh, what I would hold there is that death did come through, uh, humanity through the conscious experience, because I think the death that's being described there is essentially the, um, uh, the weight of, um, uh, the weight of being a moral being, essentially, like you're not really culpable as a non-moral being. But once human consciousness develops to the point that it is like sentient, that we would say like this is a human, um, with one of the aspects of what it is to be ontologically a human is to be a moral agent. To be a moral agent is to have a limited uh, a limited capacity as an ontologically limited being, and therefore moral culpability would be essentially as the moment that moral culpability manifests in humanity. Um, so also death manifests in humanity as the human conscious experience dies as a limited being. So I feel like we're getting into the weeds and I don't want to miss the point. So let me see if you agree with this statement just to wrap up this question. Would you then go on record saying that death, suffering, disease, exploitation of the strong over the weak were the instruments that God used to create? I would say that they're instruments in the way that God chose to create in the okay. same way that he uses those instruments throughout all of the rest of experience. And that, I think, leads us into this last question. To me, that is fundamentally the flaw that goes against the character and nature of God as described in the Bible. I think that's fundamentally the biggest flaw with well, your position. Do we, see, do we see God using suffering, disease, death 
post-creation. Yes, and he tells us that he did that, and he tells us why. But what you're saying is that God told us he created life, um, as, well, and but, but then, and he tells us how he created life, but then you're injecting and saying he created life using death. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the opposite of that. Well, the Bible there is talking about human conscience death, right? That's what I'm, I'm holding. And it seems like you hold the same position, that it's human death that's being prioritized there, right? Not just any death. No, no, but God did not, I am not saying that God used death to create animals either. That's what you're saying. But you are holding that there was death in the kind of pre-fallen state. I think that's possible, maybe even likely, but okay. uh, many of my young earth creationist friends would disagree. Would disagree with that? Um, and if you hold the position that God didn't use, yeah, again, we're almost at a tautology. Like you would say that this is not true because this is how you interpret Genesis 1, uh, one 2. Um, to say that it's theologically consist- inconsistent, though. So, but this is def- the death I'm talking about, even if, it, if it's true that there was animal death, it's different. I'm not talking about malicious animal death, competition and suffering of sentient beings, which is what you're proposing, that there's millions and millions of years of suffering amongst living creatures that, that had feelings. Yeah. Um, well, I don't, and, and that yeah. was, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and you're putting all that in there? I'm not. You're putting all the death, suffering under very good. I'm not. The judgment that comes later, the death and suffering that comes later, is post-fall. Therein lies the difference. Um, yeah, I would say the... I don't see that as some type of like fundamental theological problem that God would use death as a, as a means of creation. Um, in the same way that I don't see that as any like um, question of his sovereignty that he would use any means of creation um, and that death would somehow be apart from what he could use. So you would, um, you would lump death and suffering into the very good category? Um, so the very good category would come from the mythic kind of theological So it wasn't very good. Um, I'm trying to understand. Yeah. You're just kind of maneuvering between all of these mythic. And, so was it very good or not very good? Let's start there. So was it very good? Was it not very good? It's like a classic, uh, like false dichotomy to say like it either was this way or was it like it well, was I'm very good. I'm happy to believe of, God yeah. when he says it was very good. Okay. Uh, I'm also happy to So believe, it was very good. I'm also happy to believe God as I understand that he's expressed himself through the theological truths that we see in Genesis 1-1. So Genesis was that 1-1. a yes or no? Is it very good or not very good? Um, I would say it was very good in the sense that it was theologically true that God is sovereign over creation. And so then death and suffering were part of that very good. So death and suffering, whenever we talk about death and suffering... I feel like where there's some like uh, intuition pumping, right? When we talk about death and suffering, we're usually talking about it from the human perspective, right? That's human death and suffering, which I would say the human kind of death and suffering couldn't exist without human consciousness. Human consciousness can't exist without being a moral agent. Being a moral agent uh, necessitates a fallen position. A fallen position uh, necessitates atonement. So like there is this sense of like there was in the sense of like evolutionary process, but it's not the death and suffering in the sense of like humans were suffering or we like anthropomorphize humans and suffering. Like this is just creative method 
once we see humans, we see conscious moral agents, we see limited in ontology, and then that's where we see kind of a false state. I won't push that any further. I think my point has been made. Okay. Let's, um, let's c- uh, cover two questions and then just some closing remarks for each of you. The first question is just what are like the basic things you get out of the first two, three chapters of Genesis? Like what really hits you? Do you want to go first, Alex, with yeah. just a little summary of like, you know, what's for my you, position? Yeah. What's God's message to you through those chapters? So I think whenever we whenever we step back and we um, we don't impose like a literal's view of Genesis one on the text, I think that we start to get a, a higher sense of um, uh, of God's uh, of God's nature through the text. Um, so what are things that we see? Well, whenever we um, whenever we step back, we see God's condescension to humanity, right? Um, that he's not speaking in like high scientific terms of evolution that I think were probably more historically accurate, but he's using a kind of phenomenological expressions, right? He's talking about the world as you see it, the sky that produces light, um, the um, sun being something uh, in equal position with the moon, because that's phenomenologically what it appears like. It seems like the sun and this moon are kind of two sides of the same coin. But I mean, I guess, yeah. but what's the point? So the point of that is that I see that God is condescending to humanity. Basically, God um, God comes down to our level to correspond with us in a way that's personal and intimate. It's not accidental. It's not, um, it's not as though he, um, what we see in scripture, that he acts in disregard to humanity, but rather he acts kind of in correspondence to us um, and condescends to us in that way, speaking our language, talking phenomenologically. Um, from that, I get a much more intimate um, uh, depiction of God. Um, I see a much more, um, well, one of the effects is I see a much more egalitarian view of, uh, of Genesis, um, that Adam is made, um, uh, or Eve is made not out of Adam's rib, um, but rather out of his side. Um, the word there that's used um, better expressed is actually cutting one down the middle and using one's whole side, uh, which obviously couldn't happen literally, but mythically, uh, I think it it actually kind of elevates women and elevates what God has done in his creation of women. Um, I think it, it shows um, kind of a, a deep sense of connection. And that's a lot of the theological um, expression that I get in... Um, in Genesis one, none of these things, none of the the particular words in Genesis are accidental, as accidentally necessary for a cosmological world to form. So every expression is is pointed because it's more mythic. It could have used any other words. It's not necessary for these things to be this way in order for them to function materially. Um, so through that, you have a deeper sense of what are the theological. Um, things that are being conveyed. Um, God as um, uh, as bringing man into atonement with himself. God as kind of taking um, kind of these fundamental aspects of, um, of existence and kind of forming them together into kind of what we see as the height of them, which is um, the beginning of Abraham. Um, so those are kind of some of the theological expressions that I get from it. It's the reason why I like yeah, I, I quite like um, Genesis. The uh, the expression that I see is uh, a lot among theistic evolutionists is that um, uh, Genesis one is 
um, something that I respected whenever I was uh, a young earth creationist, because I, I was, um, but I deeply cherish as an evolutionist. Like, it becomes a greater sense because everything is just dripping with theological significance rather right. than accidental. Well, thanks, Alex. And then the same question for you, Joel. Like, from your perspective of the way you're handling the text, what's the main point that God's telling us through those first couple of chapters or so? Uh, the main point that he then continues to reiterate throughout the rest of the Bible, and it is namely this, um, or namely these, God is creator, number one, first and foremost. God is creator and has a very personal involvement with his creation. Number two, that man and women are created in God's image. That is hugely important, and, and we would both agree. on. I don't, I don't think anything I say here is going to... Um, be disagreeable, but um, created in God's image, that we were originally in a good state, which has then fallen due to the introduction of sin in the garden. Now we are in a cursed state. That's, that's a really important understanding of Scripture, because when we look at the world around us, we see incredible beauty and awesomeness in nature. I love studying nature. It is the thing I do. But you also see incredible suffering and hardship in nature. And, and both of those make sense in light of God as creator, but then a fall, we're living in a fallen version of that. That's an important takeaway from those first three chapters of Genesis. Um, and then that the state of mankind and our ultimate need for a redeemer, which is why Paul emphasizes this so much in the New Testament. Um, Wherefore, as by one man sin and into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned and that's why christ came to deal with that real problem um i I don't think we differ too much on those implications Uh, to me though the biggest one that i see that we differ is i view that by taking this passage, which is written in a historical narrative, just like other historical narratives, by taking it as non-history, we are doing injustice to the Word of God. Okay. All right. Thanks, Joel. Um, okay. And then just one more question is, how do we regard this issue? Personally, I wouldn't want to defend either of your positions <laughs> because I think I'd have a tough time you know, there would be certain questions that I just wouldn't be able to answer. Um, so, so we, you know, we have these differences as Christians, um, you know, and this is a part of our culture, um, having these differences. How do we regard one another um, with these differences? And is this like, um, how important is this issue? Um and how can, you know, what's the God-honoring way to, to deal with this, you know, in our Christian circles and so forth? Just any thoughts either of you have concerning that? Um, yeah, I can jump in uh, pretty quick on this one. So um, one of the things that we, um, when we often look at theological uh, disagreements, I think the best thing to do right off the bat is just do the triage, right? Um, this is a concept that was popularized by Dr. Moeller. Um, it's a good, I think it's a fairly good approach, um, which is to say um, we should look at the level at which it impacts the gospel and then 
kind of from there delineate how important it should be and kind of our um, division with one another. So uh, usually what I say is something like, um, if it's a gospel issue, then it's a high level uh, kind of priority one issue. Um, which is basically like um, if somebody doesn't believe the resurrection, if somebody doesn't believe in the historical Christ, um, these are going to be things that are so fundamental to the gospel. Uh, if you don't believe that Jesus is the method of atonement, right? These are high-level issues that if you don't hold to these things, I would argue like they're so central to the gospel that the question of whether or not you're a Christian becomes like the forefront. Um, now from there, there are what I would call second level issues, which I think usually in practicality come to whether or not you can have the Lord's supper with them. Um, now that's going to come into contact with like, um, what is somebody's view of baptism? What's somebody's view of, um, certain kind of actions as sins and things like that. Like if you don't think that you can have, take the Lord's supper consistently with like pedo Baptist, um, as an Anabaptist, like then obviously you're going to have to separate in churches because you couldn't authenticate one another's uh, expression of the Lord's Supper. Um, that's going to be a second level issue. And then there's a third level issues where you can have disagreements inside the church, inside a particular congregation um, and affirm one another's belief and genuineness, uh, faithfulness to the text. Um, you can affirm that they are at the very least attempting, um, kind of assuming the best of their motivations that they're trying to interpret the text as it, um, as it's presented to them. Um, both in its historical context and its grammatical context. Um, those are all going to be third level issues. So for something like this, it strikes me as very fundamentally in that third level. Um, meaning that we should, we should be able to step back. We should be able to say, um, okay, what is somebody's motivation in this? Like for almost every young earth theorist, um, I see the motivation as they're trying to interpret the text as well as they can. They're trying to be submissive to the Bible. They're trying to be submissive to the text. Um, these are all notably virtuous things um, that are good. Um, and so, like, affirming that person as, as a brother or sister in Christ is easy. Um, and I would partition, hopefully, the same, uh, same uh, grace on my side that I'm coming to the text. I'm trying to wrestle with it. I'm trying to interpret it as well as I can in its historical and grammatical senses. Um, and put myself in submission under the text and really struggle through it because it's, uh, these are difficult passages. Um, the, the truth seekers, every passage of scripture is a difficult passage. So there's a lot of, uh, what I would call for Christian charity, um, and Christian grace and issues like this. Okay. Thanks, Alex. And then Joel, do you agree or how do you, or do you disagree? And then what else would you have to add to that? I do agree with that sentiment, and I appreciate it. Um, we have to approach this with humility, uh, even even from young Earth perspectives. Young Earthers are kind of like fundamental Baptists. Sometimes it's like our way or the highway, and what you find out is that you know there's even a lot of differences among quote unquote young Earth creationists, um, and and so we have to be humble about where the Bible is clear about something and where it's not, and leave leave openings for disagreement. But I don't want to make that opening too broad that we undermine some of the basics of Scripture. And so, so I would tighten it up a little bit and, and maybe move this up a rank. <laughs> um, and and not because of the age of the earth. The age of the earth is not the thing. That's why I don't like calling myself a young earth creationist. That's not the point. The point is the uh, authority of Scripture because that's what the gospel rests on. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, um, 
I deliver unto you that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So the, the scriptures are foundational to the gospel. The scriptures are foundational to creation. And so the, it is one and the same issue in that sense. It's about the authority of the scriptures. I like how Francis Schaeffer puts it. He says, God has set the revelation of the Bible in history. He did not give it as he could have done in the form of a theological textbook. Having set the revelation in history, what sense then would it make for God to give us a revelation in which the history was wrong? And therein lies my whole point. Um, sure, if God had just given us those theological parts of creation and said, this is who I am, I'm your creator, now let's talk about uh, the, the gospel and your need for a savior, I'd be all for that, but he chose to set it in history. And therefore, I find that as Christians, we must be committed to taking God's word for it. And, and I think therein lies the, the fundamental difference between us. Now, I do want to emphasize that I am not a spokesperson for Answers in Genesis. You know, and, and a lot of times there's this feeling that... Um, Young Earth creationism is this uh, 20th century invention and in that everybody is just uh, uh, reading all of Answers in Genesis literature. There's a whole ecosystem out there of young Earth creationists outside of Answers in Genesis that disagree with Answers in Genesis on particulars. They are not the authoritative voice, although I appreciate much of their work. I like what they've done. Um, and and so, so there is uh, room out there for discussions in in. And we want to move forward, but my discussion is always going to start with what does the Bible say? Okay, thanks, Joel. So, can I can I ask a question on that position? Um, so, whenever I said like, I think that it's in a third theological level. Um, the emphasis there is to be able to correspond with people like in the same church. Um, would you argue that this should be like a church division, that people who are old earth Christians should be in a different congregation than those who are young earth? No, no, not okay. old earth. In fact, I find myself often... Or theistic evolutionists. Do you think that we should be removed from those congregations? I would never use the word removed. Okay. But I think, I think you would... <laughs> dragged out. Burned up the stake is Burned what I would the say. Stake. <laughs> use the, the green wood like Calvin so it goes slow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, no. Yeah. Um, I think... You would, there would be some uncomfortable differences between believers who believed in theistic evolution as, as a model for how God created and believers that believed that God created. I don't feel that tension between young earth and old earth creationists. In fact, I was in a recent discussion where there was a um, Eastern Orthodox who was defending theistic evolution. There was um, a Protestant defending old earth, and I was just talking about young earth. And um, I, I found very early on I was allied with the old earth creationist. Um, there are many old earth creationists that, that try to take a faithful, even they would call a literal interpretation of Genesis. They just try to find these places where, where the time fits in there. Um, and I can respect that. I run into that all the time. I have a harder time when you try to cram evolution into the Bible. I, I can't accept that. It would, I, I think we would find ourselves in so much disagreement philosophically that we wouldn't feel comfortable in the same church. Not that I would kick people out by any means or okay. burn them at the stake, yeah. but I don't think we would see eye to eye enough. That's such a fundamental issue in my... Um, okay. Um, so like 
just to put that at another level is like, so like the, the level of baptism is usually where we would point to, or like whether or not Christ is physical, uh, in the like transformation of the, the body of, um, of the Lord's supper. Like these are kind of of that theological issue. You would say that this is kind of of that same type of theological issue. Like this is so fundamental that like, um, I might be able to say that somebody who is a younger theor- or a um, theistic evolutionist, they might be a Christian, but I couldn't stake an affirmation on that. Would you hold that? Ooh, position? I would never. I would never question someone's belief because belief uh, Christian is based on the gospel solely. Yeah, you could be completely wrong about evolution and still believe the gospel. Um, so that has nothing to do with it. But yeah, as far as a church fellowship, you're fellowshipping with people of like faith and practice. And and this is a big enough issue in my mind that it affects the like faith and practice. I mean, I can already sense in the underlying that we have some philosophical differences about um, our relationship with nature and our relationship with um, uh, government and our relationship with the family. Uh, those things start to trickle in from an evolutionary worldview. So, so I think we would find so many differences that we would want to find other people to fellowship with. Okay. So I, I yeah I would raise it up, but not because of the age of the earth, because of the authority of Scripture. Okay. Okay. So closing remarks. Um, what is um, you know just a word about what's you find the most attractive about your view or most um, convincing or just anything else that you want um, just to wrap things up with. Um, do you want to start, Joe? Ming, do you want to start, Alex? <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So. Um, I think uh, one of the things that is uh, is valuable from my position is, again, that it puts a heavy emphasis on um, the theological conveyance. What is being theologically conveyed at this moment is always the primary question. Um, it how, holds a high reverence for what was, uh, what was Moses trying to say to his people at that time? Um, what is the Holy Spirit trying to say to us now at our time through those texts? Um, I think those are fundamental. I think that it helps us um, interpret the the world around us. Uh, I think it helps us interpret later passages um, to understand this idea that God is um, is active and sovereign in however it is that He created the universe, um, holding open the opportunity that holding open the door that it could have been seven days, it could have been a literal seven days, but it's not necessarily that way from the text. There's a textual consistency that you can have um, that I would argue. Uh, by taking a mythological view. Um, and I think in doing so, you start to notice very beautiful things about the text, um, very beautiful things about how God relates to Adam uh, and Adam being a figurehead of all of humanity um, rather than just how God interacted with a particular person a moment in history. Eve being a figurehead of all of, uh, of femininity and not just a particular person who happened to be uh, the first one created, um, how those early myths tell us about the nature of humanity more than just the accidental. The idea that Abel was killed isn't just the accidental process of a uh, course of history, but tells us something deep and theological about the nature of conflict between uh, between siblings, between humanity and ourselves. Um, these are all things that I think are, are very beneficial. Um, I think beyond that, it allows us to have... Um, 
as long as it's held properly and I think at a, at a proper level, allows us to have a greater level of community with other Christians um, to allow people to kind of hold themselves to their conscience, to the text as they see it, trying to make sense of the text, trying to make sense of the empirical world around them, um, and have the grace and kind of compassion to say like, yeah, we can agree, we can disagree, we can hold different um, positions on these. We can find different theological, or we can find different theological implications of the same theological truth. And that that theological truth is um, like evergreen um, that we see from the passage. And we see that consistently kind of all the way through scripture. Um, These are things that really draw me to this position. It's the reason why I would encourage people to... um, um, to hold the position, I think it's a very open position. I think it's very um, um, humble to kind of what we see in the conscious mind. Um, and so I think it, it has that advantage. Um, and then above all, I would say, like, I think it comes down to this idea of, again, Christian unity, kind of my first principle, which is to say, if we if we elevate these things too high, um, the theological conflicts too high, um, we can make ourselves wrong in doing so. And I think um, I think for something like this, there's a high level of freedom that the Christian has to kind of live according, understand the Bible according to their conscience, um, as well as they can submitting their conscience to the Bible itself. Um, and so those are kind of the advocacy that I would push for, push for basically saying like, hey, there's lots of perspectives on this. Um, be humble, approach scripture, approach Christians with humility, um, and then try to, um, um, yeah, uh, essentially those aspects. Um, okay. Um, and I'll ask each of you this, but if, um, do you have one book recommendation if someone wanted to look, delve more deeply into your particular point of view, like what book would you refer them to? Um, so I think N.T. Wright has written, um, some work and I, I quite like N.T. Wright because I think he holds a similar position. It's actually kind of hard to peg down in the same way, uh, that it might be hard to peg me down at times, um, exactly what his position is. Cause he, he really tries to emphasize the idea that, um, there are a multitude of perspectives. Some of these are going to be more valid than others. Some of these are going to be more sound than others. Um, but high, emphasizing a high level of Christian charity where it can't really be deciphered whether or not one is more sound than the other. Um, I know that he's uh, written quite a bit on that. Um, basically anything by N.T. Wright or J.I. Packer is going to kind of delve into that a little bit more. Um, I would particularly look toward uh, a series of lectures that he gave. I don't think he put it in a book, but you'll find it on YouTube. You'll find it um, a few different for- video formats. Um, that he gave to uh, Veritas, where it was him discussing um, his position and how should we understand a um, historical or rather non-historical Adam? What are the implications of that? So I would push toward saying, like, check out N.T. Wright. If you search him, the first things that you'll find are his lectures and uh, uh, at Veritas, because that was one of his you know biggest events. Um, and I think that he holds a good approach. Um, I think he's a humble guy. I think he approaches other Christians um, in a, a like manner. So um, he's somebody that I would say, yeah, give him a shot. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Okay, Joel, closing remarks. Yeah, well, I think I'd like to just finish by saying um, thank you for hosting this. This was sure. this was a very interesting discussion and I think useful. Um, I 
from the beginning, I think I made my position clear, and it's simple. I don't need to restate it. It is simply a sola scriptura, the Bible-first approach. When you take the straight reading of Scripture, what do you get? I come away with that, with those things we talked about at the beginning, a young creation created in six ordinary days, a flood, a global flood. And that raises a lot of... Of questions on the science side of things. So here's my appeal, especially to um, our listeners out there, is uh, we need your help. Like I'm a scientist, and these questions, like uh, how do we how do we reconcile the the radiometric dating things with a young Earth? Um, how do we reconcile the the death and suffering carnivorous? Uh, features and organisms with a a good earth that was vegetarian according to genesis 131 how do we answer these questions the flood brings in all sorts of flood geology and we are just a drop in the bucket trying to kind of grapple with this data so if you're a science lover out there um, by all means, you don't have to check your brain in at the door when you study the Bible, even a young earth creationist. So um, definitely, we would love love your help to pursue and see how can we explain the data that, that is out there from secular science from a young earth model. So I, I just want to start with that appeal. And then I want to say, uh, in conclusion, that when, we, when we're dealing with science, we have to allow, we have to allow the Bible to push back against science. If there's a disagreement, we have to allow the Bible to be correct first and then try to sort out the science. Um, and don't ever be ashamed of doing that. But you have to be willing to put in some legwork to, um, to start studying. And that's what I encourage everyone to do. Uh, I think as far as a book to recommend, I don't have one other than, and I'm not trying to play one-upmanship here, the Bible. Because that is the fundamental um, source of the information that I'm approaching with a young earth perspective. So uh, there are many resources out there, and I, 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 I won't bother to, to list them. But um, definitely just start with God's word and go from there. That's, that's my recommendation for, for everyone out there. All right. Well, thanks, Joel, and thanks, Alex. Um, I really appreciate you guys preparing and engaging in this and um, de- defending the p- particular perspectives, perspectives that you have. So thank you a whole lot. Mm-hmm.